I want to begin our time uh, considering God's Word by asking this question. After Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Anyone? They hid. Yeah, exactly. After they, they took the fruit, they knew that they weren't supposed to do it. They ate the fruit. Their eyes were open. They noticed that they were naked. And they had known they were naked before, but we're told in chapter 2 that they were both naked and not ashamed. But then you get into chapter 3, they sin, they see that they're naked, and then they hide. Why did they hide? Shame. They hid because they were ashamed. They could no longer be seen for who they were. See, before they sinned, they were able to just be very vulnerable, very exposed, very transparent, very much who they are. Look at me, I'm an open book. That's what Adam and Eve both could have said. And I've got no reason to be ashamed. I have nothing to hide. People say that today, but it's just not really true. We all have something to hide. Somewhere along the line, we've done something, thought something, felt something that we want to hide. We sometimes try to hide it from ourselves. It's very common to even try to hide it from God. We definitely want to hide it from one another. That's, that's what shame is. Shame is this, this impulse to hide because we don't want to be seen for who we are. So I come to a second question, and, and these are just rhetorical questions at this point. Is there anything this morning for which you are ashamed? Anything that you're carrying with you? Perhaps it's a day old or a week old or a month old, but for some of us it might be decades old. We just want to hide ourselves because of something that happened perhaps decades in our past. And though we've come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we've, we've received the atonement, the covering, the, the forgiveness that comes through faith in Christ, we've received the grace of God. Nevertheless, we're still ashamed. Just give you a moment to think if, if that's you. Is that something that you've wrestled with? Sin from your past for which you are still in this very moment very much ashamed. What do we do with the shame? Wouldn't it be grand if it could just be taken away? That that weight, that, that hole, that darkness that you've been hiding and protecting and carrying all these years could just evaporate and be gone, filled in with love and grace and forgiveness. Is that possible? Is it possible for that thing to be lifted off your shoulders? That thing you did, that thing you thought, that thing you said, or maybe that thing that you did not do, but know you should have done. I think today's message speaks directly to this part of the gospel. We're not always that good at addressing the shame. I think that we address the guilt. We understand the removal of guilt, and guilt and shame go together like hand in glove, but for some reason, we think that we could get rid of the guilt, but the shame hangs. It looms like a dark cloud. What if the shame could be taken away? Remember, what is shame? Shame is this impulse to hide because we don't want to be seen for who we are. Today's sermon is all about shame. And as I go through God's Word with you this morning, I want you to ask the question, could these Scriptures address and alleviate, perhaps remove altogether the shame that you've been so burdened with. That would be a good way to start 2019. For the shame 
to be lifted. Not just the guilt, but the shame. Would you pray with me? Invite God to help you to see what His Scriptures have to say about the shame of sin. Oh God, as we come to the beginning of a new year, it's in some ways artificial, but in other ways it, it is natural for us to mark a new beginning. We know that really the new beginning that we had was that moment that we put our faith in you and, and there was now, from that point forward no more condemnation. Lord, I, as a pastor, with a pastor's heart, I wonder if we fully understood the depth of the gospel. And I pray for your people in this church, especially those who labor under the mastery of shame. I pray that you would speak your words of comfort. I pray that you'd help me as we take a look at your scriptures today to see what the gospel has to say about our shame. I pray you might lift it forever. Lord, please speak through me a man who knows much about shame, for my sins are many. So speak through me in spite of me. Minister to me even while you minister to this, your church. We thank you for your word and for your gospel and for the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I believe that I said before Christmas that we had come to the end of our sermon series on David. But the more I reflected on it, the more I thought, well, we just can't leave it hanging the way we did. We can't just stop where we did because we introduce a lot of ideas. For example, the sin of David. We, we introduce some of David's grotesque sin. I'm not going to rehearse it all for you, and, and I'm only going to take a look at 1 Samuel sin. So that is the sin of David in 1 Samuel, but it's really important that we don't just address David's sin, say, well, he was a terrible sinner, but God's grace covered him because there's other verses coming that if you are going to read the Bible on your own, you're going to come to them and you say, well, the preacher lied to me. So I want to address those verses today. Let's begin by reviewing just some of David's sin. This is by no means exhaustive. David was just a sinner through and through. But I want to give you three categories of sin that we saw. And this doesn't even include his adultery and murder that comes near the end of his life in uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. So these are all sins that we expose by looking at David's life in 1 Samuel. Just the rise of David before he became king. First category of sin that we saw was that David, uh, as much as he believed in the promises of God, he was anointed by God, he knew that God was going to make him king, he was not content to just sit and wait. See, he had a problem. There was a man on the throne, the throne that David coveted, the throne that David could not wait to get on top of. He wanted to be king, and so we saw in our previous sermon series that David embroiled himself in conspiracy and treason. That David, all while he fiend uh, this sort of innocence, and he said, like, I have nothing against the king. I will not raise my hand against the king's uh, or the Lord's anointed. We saw at several junctures, as early as 1 Samuel 17, that David made a point of publicly shaming Saul. That is, he made a point of making Saul look like a fool, look like he wasn't able to reign as king. We saw that in 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26. We saw that his conspiracy and treason went a lot further than making the king look bad. He actually entered into a conspiracy to overthrow the king with Ahimelech and the priest at Nob. And we saw that in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Second category of sin that we saw in David was polygamy and adultery. Polygamy is, is 
not God's view of marriage. Now, I know a lot of old covenant saints were polygamists. You think about Abraham, you think about Jacob, you think about David, and prolifically, you think about Solomon. So yes, God worked with men who were polygamists. Polygamous, polygamy means that you have many wives. But it's a sin. Jesus himself says that God intended it to be one man and one woman from the beginning. So David was polygamous. In 1 Samuel, we see that he married Michal, Abigail, and Ahinoam. If we take a look at his whole life, he also marries Makah, Haggith, Abital, Eglah, Bathsheba, And he had several other concubines, Abishag being one of them, but not the only one. David was a polygamous man. That's sinful. He was also an adulterer. That is, he took other men's wives. It's not absolutely clear in 1 Samuel that this is the case. However, we did build a case to say that David's wife, Ahinoam, is very likely Saul's wife, Ahinoam. So not only was he an adulterer, but he stole the queen from the king. That's sin. We know that he was definitely adulterous with one of his, the wife of one of his best friends, one of his 30 mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, who had been with him in exile while Saul was hunting his life. Uh, David probably watched Bathsheba grow up. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of, of uh, Ahithophel, one of his top advisors. And so he takes the granddaughter of one of his top advisors, the wife of one of his 30 mighty men. And then he kills his best friend. But this is all in David's future. But that segues nicely to the third category of sin in David's life, murder and genocide. David so badly wanted to be king that he just needed to have that royal princess so that he could have a claim on the throne. And so, although it was a bad idea, a sinful idea, when Saul said, I want you to kill 100 Philistine men in exchange for my daughter's hand in marriage, David went out and doubled it. If 100 was a bad idea, 200 was clearly a bad idea. Not righteous behavior. Sinful And 200 Philistine men never made it home to to wives and children and mothers. All so that David could marry a princess. And then when he's living in Ziklag, in the Philistine territory, he would go out and he would raid neighboring villages and towns. And he would kill all the men. He would kill all the women. He would kill all the children. He would kill the infants. Then he would take all their stuff. And he'd burn their cities to the ground. So David was a sinner. Conspiracy and treason, polygamy and adultery, murder and genocide. That's all within 1 Samuel. It just gets worse in 2 Samuel. And yet... If you keep reading the Bible, there are, and I just picked out seven of them, but there are more, there are verses that you're going to come to that say that David never sinned, or at least that's what it sounds like they're saying. Let me go through them quickly. Passages that claim that David acted righteously. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God is speaking to Solomon, and God says to Solomon, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asks for wisdom. We pick up in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked for this, that is wisdom, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold... I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. Now look at verse 14. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This is God speaking. He says, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, just like David your father did, 
then I'll lengthen your days. Let's take a look at another one in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. And this is coming after Solomon builds a temple for God and, and Solomon prays to God to fill the temple with his manifest presence, with his glory. And so God moves from the tabernacle, which is a tent, and resides with all of his manifest glory in the, the, the temple that Solomon had built. Chapter 1 Kings 9, verses 1 to 5. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. That's what we had just read about when Solomon asked for wisdom. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, Look at this, verse 4. If you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel now we can be forgiven if we're cruising through the Bible and we come to this verse and it sounds as though God is saying to Solomon that David, Solomon's father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, that is sinlessness, and that he did according to all that God had commanded him, keeping his statutes and his rules. Let's take a look at another one. Chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. Chapter 11 is really a list of all of Solomon's sins. And tucked in there, verses 4 to 6, we get this. When Solomon was old and his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom and the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Again, what does it look like we're finding out here? That David's heart was wholly true to the Lord God? And that unlike David... Solomon's father, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It did not wholly follow the Lord, which implies that David did wholly follow the Lord. Go to verse 38 of the same chapter, and now uh, God is speaking through the prophet to Jeroboam because God is going to take ten tribes away from Solomon and the Davidic house and give them to Jeroboam and set up a new kingdom. And this is what God says to Jeroboam through the prophet. If you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. See, this is why when, we, when we're reading the Bible, we get to verses like this one, and we say, oh, David was a man after God's own heart. That means that he kept God's statutes and his commandments. It means that David was righteous. It means that David didn't sin. Skip over to chapter 14, verses 7 to 9. What I'm doing here is I'm showing that this is not like a one-off. This is a repeated pattern. In, in the history as written in God's word. David is always referred back to as this righteous king who did what was right, who walked with uprightness of heart and walked in the, in the commandments and statutes of God. 1 Kings 14, verses 7-9. Go tell Jeroboam. This is the same king that God had promised in chapter 11, a kingdom. Go tell Jeroboam, this king, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. 
But you have done evil above all who are before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. So Jeroboam becomes this archetype of an evil king. So now the future kings either walk in the ways of David or they walk in the ways of Jeroboam. David walked with the Lord. Jeroboam turned his back on the Lord. Two more quick ones. Uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over uh, or sorry, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord has given him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Last one. Second Kings, so you've got to skip to the next book. Second Kings 22, verses 1 to 2. Second Kings chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he ran th reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosca. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That the last two passages have talked about how David did not turn to the right or to the left. That's Deuteronomistic language. That is, if you keep covenant, it means that you're obeying God's rules. You're not sinning. If you turn to the right, you're sinning. If you turn to the left, you're sinning. You're breaking covenant one way or the other. And, and according to the last two passages that we read in 1 Kings 15, 1-5, and 2 Kings 22, 1-2, and 2, David did not turn to the right or to the left. Which means he didn't sin. He didn't break covenant with God. So David, we've seen, as we went very carefully through 1 Samuel, was guilty of sins of conspiracy and treason, polygamy and adultery, murder and genocide. And at the same time, David did not turn to the right or to the left. He was upright all the days of his life. He kept God's statutes and commandments I would say it looks as if he kept them perfectly. There's a man who did not sin. And see, this is why we get into a trouble when we're reading about David. You say, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. So how do we reconcile claims of Davidic righteousness with what we see clearly as David's sins? This is why people who don't believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that it's true and trustworthy, would say the Bible's filled with contradictions. Is that what we have here? Is this, is this just a, a, a sloppy narrative? A history that's filled with contradictions? It might be, as some people in, in the academy have argued, where there were some people that liked David and some people who didn't like David. So whenever David's sins are being reported on, that's somebody who didn't like David, but then a scribe later in time came along and he was a, a Davidic apologist and wanted us to like David and, and he wanted to set up David as the paradigm of virtue and righteousness, and so he tried to correct the record by writing these other things. So you have two different authors, sort of like dueling pianos. Which one do you listen to? Is the Bible filled with contradictions? Is this narrative filled with contradictions or not? How do we reconcile claims of Davidic righteousness with clear Davidic sins? We have three options. Option number one. We humble ourselves and we say, well, we were wrong about David. He really was perfect. He really was righteous. What it means to be a man after God's own heart is to never sin. It's for God to look down and say, I see something good in you, and therefore I choose you. That's option one. It's, 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 it's not undoable. We could do that. 
Would you let me do that? Would you let me say that four months of preaching are all a waste? That we totally missed the boat. We, we have added things to the Bible, to God's record. Would you let me? Option one. Option two, we could sort of mitigate what we've said. You say, well, you know, that's one part of the story, but there's another side. We weren't entirely fair to David. We, we just took the most negative gloss we we always read the worst into what we were reading you know David wasn't perfect we might say but he wasn't as bad as we've made him out to be that's option two would you let me do that if you let me do either option one or option two what you're saying is you don't care that much about polygamy and adultery murder and genocide conspiracy and treason So option one and two don't really work. Unless we've really misread the Bible. So there's a third option. And this is the option that I'm going to take. We were right about David. He really was that bad. Or to use more biblical language, he really was that evil. So then we're stuck, aren't we? How are we going to break this seeming contradiction? How about we invite David to answer that question for us? David, how are we supposed to understand this contradiction between your clear, blatant sins, sins that I might add are probably greater than any of ours, and yet God Himself saying that you are a beacon of righteousness? How do we reconcile the two, David? David, could you help us to understand you a little bit more? Help us to understand God a little bit more. Help us to understand God's Word a little bit more. And I I do believe, and Paul would agree with me, that's kind of a power play, isn't it? Paul agrees with me. But it's true. Open to Psalm 32. David does answer this for us. I'll just note this. I could have easily gone to Romans chapter 4 because that's what... See, when, when Paul is struggling with this contradiction, that's exactly what he does. He goes back to Psalm 32. So I'm following Paul's lead. It's not so much that Paul agrees with me as much as I agree with Paul. Because Paul, when he's trying to, trying to teach the gospel to us, in, in Romans 4, and we're going to be preaching Romans, so let's take a look more closely at, at Romans or Psalm 32. But Paul says, what we cannot conclude is that the old covenant saints really weren't that bad. They really were that bad. They really were that evil. And then he says, David himself admits it. That's what we're going to look at here. So David, could you help us out? How do we reconcile your evil with God's claim that you are perfectly righteous? Take a look at Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. This is a maskil of David. So David's reflecting on, on himself, and he's reflecting on his relationship with God, and he's reflecting on who God is and what God has done for him. And this is what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's exactly what Paul cites in Romans chapter 4. Do you see the three parts there? Blesses the man, three things. Number one, whose transgression is forgiven. Number two, whose sin is covered. And number three, the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. What is David writing about here? Well, he's writing about the gospel. More specifically, David is writing about what we call justification. It, it's just one aspect of the gospel. Justification is not all of the gospel, but it's, it's one really important aspect of the gospel. And, and what he's writing about is justification. Well, what is, according to David, the definition of justification? Well, 
David says that he brings something to the table and God brings something to the table. And when the two meet, the result is what we call or label justification. So what does David bring to the table according to Psalm 32 verses 1 to 2? David brings transgression. What's transgression? Transgression is not generic sin. It's not just uh, banal wickedness or evil. Transgression is actually breaking a particular commandment that God has given. So God says, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve take it and they eat of it. That's transgression. They've transgressed the law. So it's breaking the law. It is breaking a revealed commandment of God. That's what David brings to the table, transgression. By the time David lived, God had already revealed 613 laws. What's David's contribution to justification? He broke those laws. Secondly, sin. Sin. David brings sin. Sin is a little bit more generic of a title. It's missing the mark. It's, it's not acting righteously. So whereas transgression looks specifically at the law, sin is just missing the mark. It's, it's not being perfect to whatever degree that is. And so in that sense, sin conceptually is a more generic term. So David misses the mark. He doesn't live a perfectly righteous life. The third thing that David brings is iniquity. His heart is bent against God and his ways. His constitution, that is what makes him a man, has been twisted and perverted. He, he's, he exists in a state of depravity where it's not natural for David to walk in the ways of God. This is what we bring to the table too. Transgression, sin, iniquity. We break God's laws. We miss the mark. And our very nature, our very constitution is bent opposite to God. At least before we are saved. Now what's God's contribution to justification? Well, to transgression, God brings forgiveness. So that's very specific. Forgiveness is not a generic sort of, I feel like I've hurt you in some way. No, it's, God, I have transgressed your laws. You said not to do this, and I did this. You said to do this, and I didn't do this. So, so God has to deal with actual transgression, uh, ac the actual breaking of the, his revealed word, his revealed will, his revealed commandment and law. And God says, I forgive you, David. I forgive you. What is forgiveness then? If I break the law, I owe an, a, a debt to my sovereign. So if I break a, a law in Canada, then I owe a debt to the crown of Canada. If I break God's law, I'm indebted to him. And, and that indebtedness is paid off through penalty, imprisonment. If I break a law in Canada, we have, well, this law is worth that many years in prison, and that law is worth that many years in prison, and that law is worth that many years in prison. Different laws, different amount of times. What if you transgress? What if you break the law of an infinite person, an infinite sovereign? Well, then your penalty is infinite. Because you are, you are breaking the laws of a perfect person, an infinite person, that's where the whole doctrine of hell comes in. So if I break God's law, when David broke God's law, he owed God an infinite debt. That is, an eternal imprisonment. And we see that right in Deuteronomy 28. If you break this covenant, if you break these laws, you will be exiled from me. You will be put away from me. You will not have fellowship with me. You will not receive my blessings. That, that's hell. We are exiled from God. We are imprisoned forever if we break God's law. So what's forgiveness? 
Forgiveness is I'm not going to require you to pay your debt. David brings transgression. God brings forgiveness. Secondly, David brings sin, and with sin comes shame, and God brings covering. And we see that with Adam and Eve. This is getting right to the heart of the problem that we uh, introduced today's sermon with. When Adam and Eve transgressed, they, they also sinned. They missed the mark, which introduced shame, and they wanted to cover themselves up. And so they hid themselves, and when they were exposed, when they were called out of their hiding, they covered themselves. They, they tried to partially hide from God. And what did God do? God didn't rip the leaves away from them. He actually gave them a better covering. He says, I'm going I'm to cover you with the skin of an animal. And you've probably heard it said that that's the first death recorded in the Bible. So God killed an innocent animal because of the sin of Adam and Eve and covered them so that they wouldn't have to walk around in the shame of their nakedness. Which is really pointing forward to what David is talking about. When I sin, I am ashamed. But God covers him. Not with the skin of an animal, but with the blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in a moment. Third, iniquity. Iniquity, being bent against God. That's what David brings. God, in response to that, brings a refusal to count this iniquity. I'm gonna, I, I don't acknowledge it. It's as if it's not real. It doesn't exist. So, true or false on these following statements? David walked in God's ways, keeping his statutes and his commandments. David walked before the Lord with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that the Lord had commanded him and keeping his statutes and his rules. David's heart was wholly true to the Lord his God. David kept the Lord's commandments and followed him with all his heart, doing only that which was right in God's eyes. That's for me one of the hardest ones, doing only that which is right in God's eyes. True or false? David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That's what we read, true or false. Well, on the one hand, let's start with false. False. God has written David's biography for us in his word. It's authoritative. We see that on one level, that these are all false statements. David didn't walk in God's ways. He didn't keep his statutes and his commandments. David didn't have integrity of heart. He wasn't upright doing all that the Lord had commanded him, keeping his statutes and, and, and rules. David's heart wasn't wholly true to the Lord his God. David didn't stay on, on the path without turning to the left or to the right. So on one level, these things are false. And David himself acknowledges that in Psalm 32. Take a look at verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Why? Because he had sinned. He, he hadn't done these things that, that God has said that David did. David himself is acknowledging that in the Bible. In Psalm 32. Then look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. There's confession. David here is acknowledging that he sinned. He, he was not these things. 
that the Bible says that he was, that God says that David was. David says, that's not true of me. I'm a sinner. And God's hand was heavy upon me. It's like as if my bones were being crushed under the weight of my guilt. David continues, he says, I did not cover my iniquity. I did not hide myself from you. I said, look, God, I'm a sinner. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Do you see those three again? Sin, iniquity, transgression. David is acknowledging that he brings sin, iniquity, and transgression to the table. Just like we said he did through our sermon series on the rise of David. So we're not wrong. David agrees with us. But on the other hand, these statements are true. Because God has said that they're true. God has spoken. And God has written in his word that David was these things. How can that be? Take a look at the end of verse 5. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There is a depth to the gospel that very subtly gets weaved into the narrative of First and Second Kings. When God looked at David, what did God see? When God spoke of David, what did God say? When God looked at David, God saw perfect righteousness. No sin. No need to be ashamed. But we say, how can that be so? We have caught David in the act of sin. And not little sin, big sin. How could God say such a thing? How could God see such a thing? How could God affirm perfect righteousness in David? It's not fair. It's not right. It's not just. But that's the gospel. When God looked at David, he just saw perfection. And this is another thing that's related to justification. So justification, then, has two parts. We bring transgression, sin, and iniquity. God brings forgiveness, a covering, and a, a refusal to count this iniquity. So what happens is our debt is paid, but that's just the beginning. Then God adds to our sort of neutral status perfect righteousness. So that you can have a man who is guilty of conspiracy and treason, polygamy and adultery, murder and genocide. And when God looks at him and when God speaks of him, he says, look at David, my servant, who walked with perfect righteousness, with uprightness of heart, never de departing to the right or to the left. We say, how is that so? Because of justification. Because God has imputed his righteousness to David and imputed David's sinfulness to himself. Imputation. It's a great word. It's a big word. But what it means is it's just a trade. And David understood it. And I wonder if we do. This is the gospel that David understood. I just bring transgression, iniquity, and sin. So God, here it is. I give it to you. Take it. I impute this to you. What that means is I want you to own it. I want you to take ownership of it, to take responsibility for it, to pay off the debt that I have accumulated. That's what that's a radical thing to say to God. That's what David says. And God says, okay, I'll take it. And in return, I give you my righteousness. And if I give you my righteousness, then whenever I speak of you to others, I'm not going to bring up 
your sin and your transgression and your iniquity. I'm going to talk about the righteousness that I've given to you because it's yours now. It's an alien righteousness, but it's yours. It doesn't come from within you. It comes from me, but I give it to you. And you have full ownership of it. It's as if it is yours. It's as if you did live in perfect righteousness. Now, uh, until you get to Jesus, there's a real big theological problem with this. How are you going to give God your sin? That's a nice idea. Just throw it up there. Give it to God. He can tuck it away in heaven somewhere. Maybe sweep it under the carpet. But that's not what God does. God can't do that because God is just. And there's where the son of David becomes so important. You see, what David did, whether or not David understood this or not, it's not clear. Psalm 110 suggests that he might have had some understanding of this. God, our David actually gave his sin to his son. If you could just picture all of David's sin r- bundled together, tied up, duct taped, into the, so you got this parcel of sin, he just passed it down generation after generation until it comes and it lands in, in the lap of Jesus, the son of David. And Jesus didn't have any sin of his own that he needed to pay. So he unwraps this sin gift that David, his father, had given to him. And he says, I'll own that. I'll own that. It's as if it's mine. So without ever affirming that David or that Jesus sinned, we don't affirm that. Jesus was without sin. And yet, if we can say that the righteousness of God is given as a gift to David. The inverse is also true. The sinfulness of David is given as a gift to his son, the Lord Jesus. And it's as if it's his own. And Jesus takes responsibility for the conspiracy and the treason, for the polygamy and the adultery, for the murder and the genocide. What's our first question? Any of us carrying around shame? Do you see what's implicit in this trade? David gets the glory of perfect righteousness and Jesus gets the shame of sin. The cross is more, not less, more than the removal of guilt. The cross is the removal of your shame. Have you given or do you realize that you have given your shame to Jesus? That that's part of the parcel of the gospel. That when he hung on the cross, he was intimately acquainted with your shame. He felt as though he had done the things that you did felt the things that you had felt, said the things that you had said. He, he felt as if he had not done the things that you ought to have done. And the same is true for me. My sin, my iniquity, my transgression, my shame is not mine to carry. It's not mine to bear. It's Christ's to carry. It's His to bear. And here's the promise. This is what's so amazing about the gospel. When God looks at me, when God looks at you, if you have made this trade, do you know what God says when He speaks of you in heaven? Do you know what God would say about you if He was to write a book about you and let everybody read it the way we've read about David? Have you seen my servant Oh, she is righteous, walking in my ways, keeping my statutes. Her heart is wholly devoted to me. She's never sinned. She's an example to be emulated. Her heart is truly devoted to me. She has not turned aside to the right or to the left. Is that part of your 
inner narrative about who you are? Is that, is that deeply ingrained in your identity? Because if it's not, the Lord Jesus Christ, David, invites you to make that a part of who you are. Perfectly righteous. Not just free of guilt, but free of shame. So, whenever somebody reads the Bible in these parts of the, of the Bible, and you're trying to tell them that David was an awful sinner, and they say, no, 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 I've got a verse for you. And they try to stump you by saying, look, God seems to be telling Solomon, God seems to be telling Jeroboam, God seems to be saying about David that he was perfectly righteous, that, that God's favor fell on David because David had something to offer. You can say, well, that's just not true because that's not the gospel. That's not the David I've come to know. But let me talk to you about justification and imputed righteousness so that you too can have what David had. I want to give you a moment now. And as I read verses 6 and 7, my prayer is that your shame would be lifted off your shoulders. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You, O God, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. O God, I pray that you would lift the shame from us, not, not objectively, we know that that is actually dealt with if we're in Christ, but help us to know that it's dealt with. That when you speak of us, you speak of us the way you spoke of David, as saints who are full and overflowing with righteousness. And for this gift of righteousness, we thank you, son of David, for taking our sin, our transgressions, our iniquity, and our shame. In your name we praise you. Amen.